0: Welcome to This Must Be The Place, the show that reveals the unique physical, cultural, and emotional layers of places. Today, a conversation with Carrie Pollard. Carrie and I were colleagues for a while, both working at a Seattle-based digital advertising agency, and I've asked Carrie to join us since she's one of the few, one of the brave, who pushed off from the safe lands of the 9-to-5 existence for a while and traveled far and wide. One particular place she and her husband traveled to was Namibia in Africa. Not only did they visit, they lived there for, I believe, about a year, we'll ask Carrie, for the truth. That said, Carrie's back and now describes herself as a marketer by day and a novelist by night. It's time to explore those impulses that propel Carrie and her husband to make long-term travel essential to their life. Carrie, are you ready? I'm ready. Let's go. (laughs) Can you give us a little background just so people can situate themselves and who you are? what you've done, how your path through life led to the moment when you decided to take a risk, put a halt to a typical career path, and head out to Namibia.
1: Yeah. So I grew up in small-town Washington, but always wanted to travel. Was always interested in other cultures, other places. After I graduated from college at the University of Washington, I took some trips, went to Europe, did all of that. And then a few years later, working at marketing agency, working in the agency world, met my husband, and we took more trips together and then just sort of started talking more about travel and making a change. We were both ready to move on from Seattle, I think, try something different. We both wanted a new challenge in life. And so we started talking about changing that up.
0: And what was it about the life that you had that provoked the changing it up impulse? Was it some dissatisfaction with the way the U.S. is specifically cultured, or What was the, the, the spark for that shift?
1: I think for me, professionally, I was looking at just looking for a new challenge professionally. And then my husband was looking for, he wanted to transition from working at Boeing to flying full-time. So for him, it was, he was really the mastermind behind us moving and trying something new, was he had a specific job opportunity that he could pursue abroad. Mm-hmm. So we both kind of wanted to jump off and just kind of do something different, do something new.
0: And was there any fear or trepidation about the risks involved about how to come back and reassimilate, Or how did you guys assess those risks? And did you ever have little twinges of, let's not do this, let's, <laughs> let's give up?
1: Yeah, I mean, mm. of course, we had a little bit of trepidation about the risks. We didn't really think a whole lot about Coming back, mm-hmm. it was mostly getting there and, and making that part a success. We did own a house, so we sold our house. I think the biggest thing was, well, if we go and this doesn't work out, what happens then? Mm-hmm. That was definitely a conversation that we had, and that, there was some risk with that. But we saved up money, and we figured, well, the worst-case scenario was we go for six months and we travel for six months or more, and then we come back and start over.
0: Without getting too much into detail, but because I think people are interested in sometimes the logistics behind a dream, because we always hear the romanticized story of, you know, picking <laughs> up and going. But in the background behind the scenes, there's a tremendous amount of planning, whether it's financial, visas, et cetera. Can you share a little bit about if somebody had a checklist of what to think about at a high level, what to do in order to start positioning one's life to do something like this?
1: Right, right. It does depend on where you, what you want to do and where you're going. So for us, we we knew that we wanted to end up in Namibia. So we had to get there, and then we really planned to get there and then have enough money while we were there. So the logistics for us were largely related to saving money. So how can we change our lifestyle to save a certain amount of money? And we we did some rough math to figure out how much money we thought we needed, and then we worked back from there. So, okay, we needed X amount of money, that's going to take us 12 months to save. And then we kind of worked, worked it that way. But in terms of logistics, you know, we really, we sold our house. So that was a big, you know, the most tangible step that we made towards mm-hmm. that plan coming to fruition. And then we downsized. So we, we really had to go through that exercise of giving away a lot of things and really prioritizing what we wanted to keep and put in storage we luckily didn't have to get a storage unit or anything like that. My mom offered um, for, to store our stuff in her basement. So I think for a lot of people, that's a question, you know, where am I going to put my stuff if I want to come back? Mm-hmm. We weren't super extreme. You know, we wanted to keep some things, but it was really it was largely related to saving money and giving our stuff away and then buying a few things that we needed for the trip. So buying some luggage, buying some backpacks and things like that. And then my husband had to do some research for his job search over there. We did had to do a few things like get fingerprinted and do background checks and have that paperwork with us for when we got there.
0: And his job would, would have been piloting.
1: Piloting, yeah.
0: <laughs> Maybe we'll get there in a second. But yeah. I'm curious, given what you've described, would you consider yourselves minimalists? There's a a whole cultural trend right now emphasizing the minimalist lifestyle. There's actually a a podcast and a couple of guys that go around the country. The minimalists they call mm-hmm. each other, and I'll link that in the in the article that accompanies this podcast. Would you consider yourself minimalists either by by design or just naturally?
1: I think this process made us into minimalists. I think by American standards, yes, mm-hmm. we're minimalists. Yeah, but by Namibian standards or European standards? Mm. No, I don't think we're minimalist. But it's it's interesting when you put the lens of American culture on that. And going through this whole process of moving and living there and coming back, yeah, I mean, you, you have a different perspective on what you need and what's essential mm. to have in your life.
0: And there's a lot of foreshadowing is going to ask you about how that experience <laughs> changed you when you came right. back. But I wonder, and you mentioned, you know, your mom helping you with storage. What was the process of telling people that you were about to do this? Were you keeping the cards close to to your vest at first? Did you trust certain people with the information? Did you get a lot of resistance and naysayers thinking this is very risky, you shouldn't do it, and did it <laughs> erode your confidence? Tell me a little bit about your, your support system around you.
1: Yeah, that's a, such an interesting thing. We did keep the cards close. We didn't tell a lot of people for a really long time. We told a few close friends and family, and I think for a long time, people were like, yeah, yeah, okay, sure. You I know, mean, it just seems like such an out there idea. You know, as we started planning more and more and got more serious and people started to take us a little more seriously. And then we got to a point where we made sort of a big announcement. And after that, we it was, of course, a, a topic of conversation with most of our friends. It was sort of two polar opposite responses. People were either very excited, super enthusiastic, or very skeptical. Mm-hmm. So I think when you do something like this, when you really just flip things on their head in your life, it challenges people's status quo. It kind of challenges the everyday for most people. And I think there's a sen- a little bit of a sense of threat in that, mm-hmm. threatening like your own security. I think a lot of people cling to... This idea of permanence and security. And that's really important to a lot of people. And when you do something like this, I think it kind of makes them think a little bit differently about that.
0: Mm-hmm. They evaluate their own choices. It's almost like you're confronting them, even though you had, you had no intention. Right. right. Your choice just suddenly makes them have philosophical angst.
1: Right. You know? Yeah. We were really excited about it for a long time. You know, we've sort of like obsessively thought about it and talked about it. And so it was this relief when. We kind of came out with it and, and told everyone and made the announcement and we booked our, our plane tickets and stuff. So that was a really cool experience to be able to be open about it.
0: Mm-hmm. Did it give you an, an additional sense of not that you were purposeless and floating in a sea of you know existential ennui before this happened? But when you start thinking, we're going to do this, we're going to plan for it, we're going to save for it. Does it add a certain goal every day? You have it in the back of your mind and the choices you make, there's something, a bounce to your step. You know, this is happening and it adds a certain framework of meaning over time.
1: Definitely. I mean, especially on on the financial side of things, you know, every time you make a purchasing decision, does this align with our overall goal? And our overall goal was very specific. It was tied to a specific number. And so it made, you know, making decisions really easy. And it also, yeah, it created this framework of, feeling excited and feeling like we were driving towards this bigger purpose. And it helped us put things into perspective, you know, the day-to-day in and out of our jobs. You know, you kind of get through it a little easier.
0: Okay, so now let's take off and let's let's talk about Namibia and actually being there. So tell us a little bit about your life in Namibia. You know, where did you live? How did you get there? And what kind of town or community were you a part of? And, you know, just some of the texture of your typical day-to-day there. How did you get there? And then... What was the day-to-day like for both of you?
1: Yeah. So we spent about three months traveling on the way there, which we planned and we wanted to do. We thought, well, while we're spending the money and taking these flights, we might as well stop a few places. So we stopped in Japan. We stopped in Thailand and Cambodia. And then we stopped in South Africa. And South Africa was where our plans ended, which was kind of cool. You know, we had accommodations booked up until a certain point and then we just didn't have plans anymore Mm. (laughs) so we we knew we wanted to buy a car so we bought a car in cape town which was a super interesting experience we went into this car dealer and it was a new car dealer and we went in and asked the salesperson you know do you have anything in this price range and he said no but except for this little junker out there And it was exactly what we were looking for. Mm -hmm. So we we bought this little car. It was a little Volkswagen City Golf. that had like 59 horsepower or something. And it was like driving a lawnmower. Mm. So we bought the car and then we took it for a drive. We drove along the garden route in South Africa, which is this really beautiful coastal drive. And then we drove it north into Namibia, which is some really remote places. You kind of get out of... Cape Town, and you go up north over the border, and then you're really in no man's land. We crossed the border at dusk, and it was nighttime, and there were no other cars on the road, and there's no lights anywhere. So it was this kind of freaky experience of being out in the wilderness Mm -hmm. in this little tiny car on our own. We ended up into Vintuk, which is the capital of Namibia. So that's where we wanted to live. That's where we drove into, and... Driving into town that first day was pretty incredible. It's like this island in the middle of the desert, in the middle of nowhere. There's really nothing around it and it's a bustling city. There's 350,000 people that live there. There's car dealers and malls and shopping centers and so it's very it's very western, mm-hmm. if you will. And once we settled in, you know, we we found an apartment and we 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 moved into this apartment building that was just like a regular apartment building. And, and it was down the street from a shopping mall. And we lived with a bunch of other expats in the building, people from Iraq and Angola and Germany. And so it was this very multicultural building. And, you know, once we settled into that everyday life, it was interesting. Like, we didn't integrate into the local culture too much. Most Namibians live, I mean, almost off the grid, like they live way up north near the border of Angola. And then there's people that live in town and there are nice neighborhoods. And then there are sort of more township type neighborhoods where um, most of the black Africans live. And then the white Africans live in another part of town. Mm -hmm. And that's where we lived. There's this real culture of separateness there just in terms of color and socioeconomic status. And so we integrated into a tiny part of the culture, mm-hmm. but not not the Namibian culture as a whole. It was interesting. I think we went into it feeling like we were really going to get in with the local culture and really experience it fully. And we did to an extent, but in this really insular community of expats and of, you know, pilots. Mm-hmm.
0: I read a little bit about it because I wasn't too familiar with the history of Namibia, especially in the 20th century. But if I understand correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong, it had a basically German, a German colony for a while, and then South Africa took over. So Namibia has been basically colonized by relatively westernized powers for, for a long period of time, and it sounds like there's still inertia in a way about that separation. I also read that Namibian life expectancy is actually one of the lowest around, so... Yeah. I did want to, to ask you how your vision of what your life would be there, how it differed from reality. Did you have any preconceptions about Namibia before you visited that were completely dashed?
1: Yeah, it was a lot more expensive than we thought it would be. Mm-hmm. You know, we looked a little bit at like apartments and things like that, cars and how much things cost before we left and really just thought, oh, it can't be that that expensive once we get there. But it really was they don't make anything there. They don't grow anything there. Everything is imported. So that drives up the cost of everything, building mm-hmm. supplies and whatnot. So I think our standard of living wasn't what we thought it might be. I think we thought, well, we we saved all this money and we would go and kind of live this, mm-hmm. you know, lavish lifestyle. And and it was it was nice. It was fine, but that was a little bit of a disconnect from what we thought it would be versus what it was. And like I said, you know, we thought that we would really be getting in touch with the local culture, but there's this just inherent divide where you really can't mm. get too integrated into the local culture. That's just not how it is.
0: Mm. So it's just from a geographical perspective as well as just culturally attempts to do so, or it's just not? part of what's done it's not right interesting and actually in my mind's eye because i haven't talked to you since you've done this i thought you were how do you pronounce the name of the city again oh vindhook vindhook i didn't i wasn't sure if you were right smack in an urbanized area in my mind's eye you guys were out more in the in the country so to speak right. and I had a sort of out of Africa Robert Redford and what's her name Merle Street <laughs> view of what you guys were doing was there any of that by the way
1: <laughs> There was a lot of that you know it's interesting because we were we were right in the city and we spent a lot of time in the city but my husband John spent most of his time in the bush and so and we did spend a fair amount of time out of the city in the bush because basically once you get outside of the city there's nothing for hundreds and hundreds of miles. So it's not hard to get out in the wilderness. And we did we did spend a fair amount of time out. John would go out for a week at a time and be gone. And so I would be in town, you know, going to lunch with friends, going out to drinks, spending time in the city. I discovered this great public swimming pool that I spent a lot of time at. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was this very, like, urban lifestyle that we had.
0: And you make it sound almost envision, envisioning in my mind that once you leave the city limits, it's almost like a continental shelf. <laughs> Immediately you're out in the completely un, non-urban area in the right. bush, so to speak. Right. So there's a very hard line between the city, the oasis and and the rest of the country. Is that accurate?
1: Yeah, it is. And when you fly over it, you know, when you fly over the whole country, there's just nothing. And then Vintook is this sort of greenish, you know, metal-colored blob mm. right in the middle.
0: <laughs> so I heard you had a unique experience on a Namibian sand dune. Do tell us about that.
1: I did. My husband, John, he he planned a, a well, weekend getaway for my birthday. And so we we packed up the car and headed down south to Sossusvlei, which is... This very famous part of Namibia that's, that's photographed with all the dead trees and the sand dunes. We, we got out there and, you know, it was, it was one of those weekends where we forgot, like, everything. We forgot propane for the stove and we forgot one of our sleeping mats and sort of started off on the wrong foot. We, got, uh, we, we drove down in our little tiny car, ended up down at Sosa's Flay. It's like a five-hour drive or something and uh, set up camp. And the next morning, decided to drive into the park. So it's the Namib Naukluft National Park, I think, and drive out and check out the sand dunes and drive around and walk on the sand dunes and stuff. And so John had this great idea to go in the middle of the day, because there are less people there. And it's very hot in the middle of the day out there. So we, we ended up just hiking around these sand dunes in this searing heat and we drank all the water we had and and he was right there was there were not a lot of people there but he wanted to climb to the top of this sand dune called Big daddy that's really high it's like 3,000 feet high or something like that and he really wanted to climb to the top of it at like one o'clock in the afternoon so so we climb up to the top and it's it's just so windy and hot and there's sand everywhere. And um, we get to the top and we sit down getting ready to have this picnic and there's just sand blowing into our face and into our mouth. And we just we just gave up. We said, you know, let's just go back down. And And John seemed so bummed about this experience. And I'm just thinking, let's just go back to the campsite and get some water, get some food. But on the way down, he said, you know, hold up. I'm going to get some water. We had a little bit of water left. And you take a couple pictures while we're standing here. I'm snapping a couple of photos. And he says, hey, Carrie. And I turned around and he was on one knee and had a ring in his hand. It, it did c- catch me completely by surprise. You know, we we got engaged on uh, on the side of a sand dune in the middle of nowhere. All by ourselves. It was incredible and beautiful. And we were very hot and tired. But he had had this whole weekend planned and everything had gone wrong that could go wrong. <laughs> and then, uh, and when, then we decided we wanted to get married uh, two weeks later. So we, we planned the shotgun wedding, you know, which was this really incredible experience. We, we found a minister to marry us and I bought a dress and got a bouquet and we got seven of our friends together and got married in front of the parliament building in this beautiful garden. And it was just perfect. It was exactly how we wanted it to be. And I couldn't have imagined it being any other way, except for maybe having our family there. Mm -hmm. You know, it just wasn't an option. It was a very unique experience. And I would say it's, it was exactly what we would have wanted.
0: It's funny how engagement stories are either redescribed in this tremendously idealized, romanticized, or (laughs) <laughs> Everything goes wrong and then suddenly you're engaged. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let's travel back in time a bit, place yourself back in that period. What does a perfect Saturday morning in Namibia look like? What happens after you wake up?
1: This was a pretty typical scenario. We would wake up, one of our friends would call us, and we would all go to breakfast at a cafe. And we'd go sit outside and have like a really long, breakfast with a group of people, other pilots, their wives, spouses. And at some point we would say, Okay, we need to leave this cafe now, because we've been here for three hours. Mm-hmm. And and then we'd end up at someone's house. And then we would spend the afternoon drinking wine and talking and smoking chisha, sitting around and it was a lot of shooting the shit. Mm-hmm. And that's just what people do. Like there at the time there was no movie theater then there was very little you know in terms of like cultural things to do so it was just sort of everyone gets together and hangs out it was like an episode of friends mm.
0: And let me ask you an analytical question about that and it goes back to your expectations versus what was reality were you okay with that i mean i'm 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 sure it was fine or did you really want something an extra layer that wasn't necessarily an urban experience in just another country or maybe you have gone out into the bush and seen other things so was there a bit of a, a twinge about, mm, am I really experiencing something unique or how was it different?
1: Yeah. I mean, at times we felt a little trapped in the city um, because there wasn't much to do outside of the city if, unless you want to go camping or something like that. So our schedule just kind of prohibited us from doing that. And at times it was frustrating. You know, we felt a little bit like, well, isn't there more to this? And you know, we come, we came from an urban place. So, but it it was, to be fair, a very different urban experience in many ways. So, you know, I was of two minds about it, I guess.
0: What were some of those differences in the urban experience that strike you?
1: Fewer choices, Hmm. I would say fewer choices. So there's like a handful of restaurants, a handful of places that we would go all of the time. And just in general, like, it was just a little more down and dirty. Like, a little more rustic in Mm -hmm. a lot of ways. Um, It was very European, like obviously a lot of European influence there. So, you know, you go to a cafe and sit outside and everyone's smoking cigarettes and hanging out. And so there's a lot of that culture there that we don't really have here, which is kind of a nice difference. Mm
0: -hmm. What are some specific memories you have that are very Namibias, whether it's food or just a specific memory that comes to your mind immediately that says, yeah, this is uh, something that I keep inside and it's just immediately captures for me the texture of what it was like in Namibia.
1: For us, one of the things that we loved about living there was the stars. Some of the best stargazing in the world. I mean, it was incredible to see how dark the sky was and how bright the stars were. Mm -hmm. And seeing different stars in the Southern Hemisphere. That was a really incredible experience. There's a lot of really great meat in Namibia. It's a thing there. So we ate... I mean anything and everything, game meat, zebra, springbok, ostrich, mm-hmm. those things mm-hmm. you don't find here too much.
0: Mm-hmm. How are they <laughs> cooked? Like in stews or what's the or yeah, I mean, straight up?
1: Grilling actually so a big thing that's popular in Namibia is they call it a bry. And a bry is a barbecue, but Namibians use wood. So it's a, it's a whole long process. You've got the bry, you get the bry wood, you light it. You stand around and drink a couple of beers, and the men cook all of the meat. So they grill the meat, there's steaks, there's all sorts of sausages. They call Mm. them budovores. And that's kind of it. You just have meat. It's very (laughs) meat-centric.
0: So other than Namibia, did you venture to other destinations in the African continent? And if so, what were those, and how were they different from each other?
1: We took a little side trip over to Tanzania and Zanzibar, East Africa is vastly different from West Africa. It was it was a cool experience to get to see it, the melting pot of Tanzania. We flew into Dar es Salaam, and it's just, it's very different. I mean, it was like going from sort of a Western part of Africa to a truly African part of Africa. All different types of people. I mean, there's Arab influence and Indian influence in that part of Africa. And so... Um, To be able to kind of contrast that against Namibia, which is it's a little bit more straightforward Mm and in the kinds of people that are there. And then Zanzibar is its own really special place of cultural melting pot and different types of people. And then being in a tropical place with the water, it was just it's like night and day. Mm -hmm. Does Um, it
0: have resort like infrastructure as well or is it still pretty uh, not not as commercialized?
1: It's, there's a little bit of that, but it's still like the old town, like there's crumbling buildings, and it still feels very authentic and very African, but in a completely different way than Namibia.
0: Mm-hmm. So I understand Namibia is on the eastern side, sort of in the southern curve of Africa, and what is this, Tanzania and Zanzibar is like flying right across to the, I'm sorry, the western side yeah. is Namibia, and you're flying to the eastern side, just right across, is that?
1: basically basically yeah. yeah i mean it's it's a little bit farther north the difference in landscape is huge namibia is a high desert most of the country's high desert and then you have the the atlantic which is cold mm. there it's about 55 degrees and then you go over to the eastern side of the continent and it's lush and tropical and equatorial and it's aquamarine green water mm. that's warm so it's just it's hugely different.
0: So tell us a little bit more about what your husband's job was in Namibia. I mean, you mentioned, of course, he's a pilot. Was it a commercial airline or, or something else that he, he that he did as a pilot?
1: John worked for a luxury safari company, and he worked for the sort of airline arm of that company. So this company, Wilderness Safaris, they own these luxury lodges that are out in the middle of nowhere, and many of them are inaccessible by car or any kind of vehicle. So people fly out to them. So they fly from lodge to lodge all across the country. He was basically flying tourists from the city out to the bush and then in between different lodges. So it was great to get the benefit. Part of the perk of working there was that we together could go out to the lodges and Really, really incredible experience because they were luxury to the point that we would never indulge in Mm -hmm. ourselves. So you go out and once you land, there's a person waiting with a Land Rover there for you and a tray with cold drinks. And, you know, they take you out on these sundowner game drives where you you're going out into the wilderness and then they set up uh, champagne and (laughs) wine and stuff and you're watching elephants, you know, walk by. So that was a really amazing experience and something that we would probably never do on our own. You know, just to have the level of knowledge that all of their guides had and to be able to stay in these absolutely beautiful accommodations was it's probably something we'll never get to experience again.
0: Mm-hmm. So and There you have your Robert Redford and Meryl Streep moment that I was hoping for. That.
1: And that your dream is fulfilled.
0: <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for giving me that narrative. Can you describe having that flexibility and freedom and seeing places from up high and traveling that way and having that sort of, not a passenger in a commercial airline, but you're right up there. How Does that change how you think about travel and about distances? Can you think... Introspect a little bit and think about, given the facility that you have to go up and see the instruments and see the the mechanics of flight and do whatever you want, has that changed your view about distances and motion?
1: Flying, especially bush flying, being in a small plane, is, is such a special thing. To be able to see the earth from above, it's just incredible, and especially a place like Namibia where... Some of the oldest deserts in the world and rock formations and the landscape has been etched over time. And you can so clearly see that from the air. You, know, you can see where all the water has flowed. Um, you can see where all the mountains have formed and how the sand dunes have blown in inland from the ocean. And so it, it just gives you this sense of grandeur to be able to see it from above. And to get a perspective of this v- wide, vast, open place and how it's just, I mean, it's true wilderness. Mm-hmm. And to be able to be in a plane, too, a small plane, and there's this, there's this element of danger that's there when you're in a single-engine aircraft out in the middle of nowhere mm-hmm. with no radar and very little radio contact. So there, there's definitely an edge of danger to it that you can't experience in very many places.
0: Yeah, I've, I've been a aviation geek since I've been young, but unfortunately I haven't had the same, <laughs> I'm, I envy you the same kind of access that you have had. And, you know, I would look at top, topographic maps, and, you know, or I have a globe, and you could feel the texture of all these places if you run your finger across mountains in the Himalayas or what have you. So when you were describing the dunes of namibia and how terrain is sort of wrinkled and coursing with with grooves etc I, I, I kept thinking of me running my finger through a globe and <laughs> and really envying the fact that you could just pick up and go and do that and and then i'm thinking about you know movies in my travel like crocodile dundee and bush pilots that just go up right and then you know their gas is almost done so they just bang down anywhere <laughs> and just grab a can and fill it, fill the tank and go back up again. I mean, there's a certain casualness about that life. Am I over romanticizing it? Is there anything (laughs) of that?
1: I think that there's, there's an element of that there. And I think that's a culture there. People that live out in the bush, you know, it's a very entrepreneurial lifestyle. Where John was working, it wasn't quite like that. They had it, it was almost like a small airline. They had it very locked down. It was very well organized with their fuel planning and everything. So that is how a lot of people grew up there. It I would say it's it's very similar to the Australian Outback in that way. Mm-hmm. People live out on farms and they have their plane and they take their plane into town, you know, a couple of times a year and get supplies and it's kind of the Wild West mm-hmm. and that is how a lot of people describe the flying there. They call it cowboy flying. Mm. From an aviation perspective, it's it's a really incredible opportunity to get to do that kind of flying and be in that kind of place. Mm-hmm.
0: So let's shift a little bit. I'm going to talk about philosophy of travel. Do you have a philosophy of travel? Do you even think of it in that way? Or do you make choices that just flow out of you intuitively? Do you, have you sat down and thought, this is my attitude toward travel and I'm going to exhibit that or?
1: I don't know but I've that I've sat down and like intentionally thought about how I want to travel. I've just mm-hmm. traveled. Mm-hmm. And I think through traveling and through those experiences, That has changed the way I approach travel. And for me, I think that travel makes us better humans. I think it gives us a window into how everyone else lives and how it's different. But really, at the end of the day, it's the same. Mm -hmm. You know, we're families and we have meals and we live our lives and it's all very similar, but different enough that we have to understand each other. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, there's a a layer of commonality, and then there's an additional layer of politics and governments and city-states and multinational corporations. And that's arguably what screws up (laughs) the other layer most of the time.
1: It really is. I mean, you, you connect with people. And I feel like when you meet someone far away, and at the surface, it seems like their life is so different. But you know, you connect with them on something. For you, it might be soccer. For mm-hmm. me, it might be, you know, books or reading or something. And, and then you realize that we're not so different. I know that's so cliche, but mm-hmm. it's so true.
0: Yeah, and I think, um, you know, cliches and stereotypes are often true for a reason. It's how you then behave after you realize that cliche and stereotype that makes it good or bad. So maybe this is a curveball question for you. When living in Namibia, or whether you're a highly independent traveler... Do you still detect any significant differences in how women are perceived or treated as independent travelers or when you were in Namibia?
1: Yeah, I think Namibia is a very safe place to travel. I think there are a lot of other places in Africa that that perception is different and I, you know, that I wouldn't recommend traveling. But I think it adds another element when you're a a solo female traveler. I think that... Culturally, that's maybe a little bit less normal or less accepted in a place like Namibia. Namibia is very conservative. Traditional gender roles mm-hmm. are very prevalent there. If you're a female on your own or a female traveling on your own, it's a little bit unusual.
0: How about independently of Namibia, just in the United States or in general, to be a woman who decides to drop the day to day, nine to five, be an independent travel devil may care, which is going to do it, go. Do you detect any resistance, uh, subtle or not so subtle, doing that or has your support system been pretty enlightened about all that?
1: I think for the most part everyone has been very supportive. I think some people don't quite connect with why I would want to do something like that or I mean why that might interest me or I think there's I think for some people it's just hard for them to understand why. Why would you want to give up what you have? Why would you want to leave all of that behind? I think there were definitely a handful of people that were concerned about how this would affect my career because I spent a lot of time investing in my career and it was really important to me. But my thought was, well, it will make my career stronger. And I think you could probably attest to that being in the same industry. You know, if you take time off and choose to come back, I think that makes you a more valuable employee. So I think those were some of the things that I faced as we were leaving and then coming back. I think there's just a lack of understanding or I guess empathy towards why you would want to leave security behind.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it goes back to your earlier point where even stating that you're going to do this is almost viewed as a direct attack or a right. direct undermining of uh, what should be done, which is the, you know, 40-year career arc with a good 401k and then take the cruise ships and then take the airlines (laughs) when you're 66 and beyond in the comfort of air conditioned Mm -hmm. tubes. Now that you've been back in the U.S. and you're living the day-to-day, are these experiences fading away or do they remain strong components of who you are? I'm really interested in unpacking how these experiences are now an essential part of who you are now.
1: Well, of course, the experiences fade over time. And I've found recently that I look through a maybe more positive lens looking back at those experiences than maybe I did at the time or even shortly after coming back. But I think it is it's just a part of my vernacular. It's a part of who I am now. It's its a, an experience that I had for a little while. I felt like I didn't want it to define everything that I did. I didn't want to be that person that was like, well, when I lived in Namibia, Mm. but you do find yourself doing that a little bit because that was your whole life for a long time. And it was a little bit hard because I think a lot of people just couldn't relate to that. Um, You know, there's definitely some people that we know who either don't travel or would never consider doing anything like that. So it's sort of a real mental leap for some people to relate to that at all. But the experiences fade and you just want to keep going. Like I want to keep having that experience, that feeling of being somewhere new and going outside of your comfort zone. I want to have that more.
0: Did the experience change you in some fundamental way as a person or do you feel you're the same person with additional facets? I mean, is it a life-changing experience, or is it just a life-enhancing experience you had?
1: It was definitely more of a life-enhancing experience. I felt pretty comfortable and grounded when I left, when we left, and coming back and being able to reflect on that, you know, I feel like it's made me a a better person. It's made me be more flexible, a better friend. Um, You know, it was interesting living there. We had this very tightly knit group of friends who were all somehow involved in aviation or the safari business. And you just become friends with these people who, you know, if you met them here at home, you might not have connected with them. Mm-hmm. But because you all have these really intense experiences together, you have this bond. Mm-hmm. And that's a really special thing that you don't get living at home, living here with your same friends and in your comfort zone.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But that, I think, was one of the most important things that came out of it for me was kind of making me more flexible, more understanding, more empathetic, just coming back, mm-hmm. being and, able to reflect on
0: that. And what do you think specifically that is? I'll just throw a hypothesis out there and you can say, yeah, that's it or no, you're smoking crack. Um, <laughs> when we're here working nine to five and we have a career, there are certain pressures when you wake up in the morning immediately you have to think about time and regimented time and getting ready and preparing and the commute. And then when you're at work, there's time as well and interactions which are fundamentally artificial. uh, Artificial (laughs) meaning for the purpose of whatever the business is. And yeah, there might be interpersonal communication, but it's always small fragments and it's tainted or tinted by the business you're in. And then after you're gone, yeah, you're free, you go home, you have dinner, you engage with friends, but there's the fatigue of the day, the pressures, the stress of the day that just change who you are even after you're gone. So there's always this gravitational pull and ellipses around the day-to-day. Is the change in your personality that you feel a little less pulled by that gravitational arc or... Am I just adding a narrative for you to to think about and say, oh, I didn't think about that before
1: Well, I didn't I don't think that I necessarily thought about it in that way. But it's true. Mm-hmm. Um, because we do just culturally have there's a lot of emphasis put on time and the structure of our daily lives. And for one, it's not like that in Namibia. Even if I was working full time, that's just not how it would be. People have a completely different concept of time there, but also just letting go of these somewhat artificial pressures that we put on ourselves for the deadline or getting to work at a certain time or whatever it is, you kind of let all of that go. And I think then for me coming back, I guess, made me feel like some of that stuff doesn't matter so much.
0: Mm -hmm. As I think about these experiences, it's interesting for me to, to project if I had that experience and then I had to come back would that experience be so fundamentally altering to me that i'd have trouble <laughs> rehooking myself to the regimented 9 to 5 did you find that at all or, or you could rehook yourself yeah,
1: yeah. i kind of had a roundabout way back to my 9 to 5 i luckily i didn't jump right back in so we we went to alaska for a summer and then i had a summer job so i worked in retail which was not stressful at all And, you know, it's a different structured environment. And then we took more time off after that. So when I did go back to the nine to five, it took me a little while Mm -hmm. to get back into the groove of, wow, I'm going to be here all day and I'm going to have to structure my time. And it was it was a weird experience for about a month Mm -hmm. after going back to work.
0: I'm hoping that there's a cultural shift, and I think it's partially due to automation and, and many other factors where, you know, people would have to sit nine to five at the same spot. Now we have telecommuting, and I think there's a, a broader acceptance is as long as the tasks are done or there's a productive moment, if it took you two hours to do a, what it usually would be a day's worth, I'm not going to care about the time margin in which this occurred as long as the task is done. I think it's a very different way of thinking uh, in the United States as opposed to other countries. But I think there's a shift going on, partly due to telecommuting and and more automation of typical tasks.
1: I think so too. I think a lot of companies and industries are moving in that direction. And I think in our industry, in the sort of marketing and advertising industry, it's, it's definitely a trend. And I think that it will make employees happier. That's sort of what employees want. And so my hope is that that trend will continue hmm. to to sort of match the lifestyle that we all
0: want. Mm-hmm. So let's change topics. I think it's a change of topic, but maybe it isn't. I know you're working on a book. and Perhaps we can talk a bit about what you're working on and how your experiences are influencing that. What's the book about? It- Does Namibia, Alaska, everything we've talked about, is that woven either explicitly or implicitly somehow in what you're working on?
1: Yeah, I wrote a book while we were in Namibia. So I finished that and moved on to a new project that I'm working on now, which is an action-adventure novel set in Namibia. So Namibia, of course, played into, into this concept, and it's essentially about a bush pilot, a female bush pilot in Namibia. I love exploring the setting. I think the setting is really compelling. And I think a lot of people are interested in that place now. And the ideas and themes around going somewhere new and completely turning your life on its head are really important to me. And so I want to tell that story. I want to tell it in a different way than what we did. But that that's what I'm working on right now.
0: Mm-hmm. So. Can you tell listeners where, where they can find you online if they want to take a look at your travels and what your future might bring? Yeah.
1: yeah, we have a blog, authorandairman.com, is where we've been talking about our most recent experiences.
0: Okay, and what I'll do is I'll, I'll add the link to the article that accompanies this podcast. So, Carrie, thank you so much for spending time with me and sharing your amazing story with us. I think it it has a logistical and inspirational components that people can can really take on for sure thank you yeah thank you for listening don't forget to share like or leave a review about this podcast since all this activity helps us get noticed and grow As with all episodes, this episode has a companion article on our site, where you can find out more about Carrie, more about her travels, and it includes other links to relevant content or sites that might make sense given our conversation. Independently of this episode, I would also love it if you visited thismustbetheplace.io, where more podcasts, videos, and written content live. And of course, you can always subscribe and receive the latest greatest episode on your favorite app and device. Find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, take your pick. Until the next time, this must be the place.